The following message entitled, Let God Be God, part 25 of the series, A Righteousness from God, was given by Bob Mundorf on the 9th of November, 2014. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. Good morning. Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to come here and worship Jesus and learn about him through your word. Lord, help us to humbly approach your word today as we look at this potentially difficult passage, Lord. Help us to remember that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Lord. Help us to be humble before you, before your powerful word. And Lord, we just ask you to help Jesus to to be magnified and to help us. We can do nothing apart from him. So I pray for him to help me as I teach, that my teaching would be clear, help us as we hear, that we would be able to understand and accept what you say in your word today. And it's in his name we ask. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Bob, and I'm a pastor here, if, if we haven't met. And uh, we've been going through a series on Sunday mornings uh, from the book of Romans. And today we're going to be in Romans chapter 9. So if you want to go ahead and start turning there in your Bible, we're going to look at verses 19 through 23. And if you were here last week, I, uh, I closed Mark's message last week with a quote that I had read earlier that week that I'm going to open this message with, because it's a, it's a very relevant quote, both for the message Mark preached last week and for this message, this passage of Scripture, scripture that we're going to be in today. And uh, it, was a, it was regarding an interview that I had read about. A reporter had interviewed Mrs. Albert Einstein, and he asked her if she understood Albert Einstein, her husband's theory of relativity. And she quickly responded, no, I don't understand the theory of relativity. But she followed it by saying, but I believe it, because I know Albert, and Albert is a man who can be trusted. She may not realize it, but in that response, she provided for us uh, a really essential principle for understanding and accepting difficult passages in the Scriptures. We may not understand everything we read in the Bible. We may not completely understand this passage that we're going to look at today. But we accept it because we know God and He can be trusted. So our text over the last few weeks, as I'd mentioned, has been in Romans 9. And this morning, we're going to look at, in in chapter 9, verses 19 through 23, I think we're going to see three principles that help us to think rightly through this difficult doctrine of election that we've been looking at. The title of the message this morning is, Let God Be God. And the three principles that I think this passage will show us are, one, the wrong way to question God's election. Two, why we must accept God's election even if we don't understand it. And three, God's purpose in election. So let's look at the passage together. Let's read it. I'll read it for us. Romans 9, 19 through 23. It starts off with a question. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, 
to answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Difficult passage. Notice how it starts out in verse 19. It starts out with the question, why does He still find fault? Who can resist His will? And this is a a very common question when this doctrine of election comes up, when we read this chapter. If we rightly understand what we had heard in the last two messages on Sunday morning, the, the, the rest of this chapter that came before, if we rightly understand what God is saying through the Apostle Paul, then this is an obvious question. Why does he still find fault? The person who asks this question must have understood, for example, as it says in verse 16, that God's sovereign choice doesn't depend on human will, on our decision, our will. It doesn't depend on exertion, anything that we do. He must, under, he must have understood when, when Paul said that God will have mercy on whom He chooses to have mercy. And so he's following the, the logic of the chapter here that this decision of election is, is fully God's decision and it's, it's not based on anything that we do. So the obvious question, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? He's basically saying, hey... If nobody can resist God's will, and He chooses some and not others, based on nothing that they do, or nothing that they will, then why does He still find fault? So, when you get to this question, and you're wondering, you know, if you haven't read ahead, what follows, you might be thinking, oh, great, Paul's going to take away all the difficulty with the answer to this question. He's going to make it super clear for us. We're not going to have any questions after we read what he has to say when he answers this question. Well, yes and no. We will get the divine answer to this question. But the divine answer may not satisfy our human reasoning. Let's take a look. Before we do, before we look at the answer, let me ask you, how, think about in the past when you've You've been questioned about this. How do you answer this question? How do you respond to this question or similar ones? Why then does God still find fault? The way that that some believers respond to this question, this, this confusion about election and human responsibility, is to maybe come to God's rescue. To, to try to get God off the hook. Because... You, you might be thinking, whenever someone's really confused, or a lot of people are confused about this, that, hey, it's like God needs a, a, a public relations manager down here on earth to kind of smooth things over because he's really not making himself sound very good when he talks about this in chapter 9 of Romans. And, and we might want to try to come to his rescue and, and get him off the hook. You know, poor little God, we've got to cover for him. And we don't realize that when we do this, 
when we just cover for God and try to smooth this whole thing over, what we're doing is we're taking the sovereign God of the universe who is far beyond our comprehension and we're domesticating Him and taming Him and and shrinking Him down and reducing His infinite knowledge to shrink into our human reasoning. See, we're not God. We don't understand God. I don't want a God that I can fully understand and wrap my mind around because if, if we could, well, He wouldn't be much of a God, would He? God is far bigger than us. And He even says it to us in Isaiah chapter 55 where He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, God, when it comes to this, His his mental reasoning, His knowledge, His understanding, He's not even like out of our league. He's out of our galaxy. He's far beyond us, as the heavens are higher than the earth. So we will never be able to shrink Him down to a size that we can wrap our minds around nor will we be able to shrink His ways down at times to, a, to, to such a small size that they fit within human reasoning. And God doesn't intend for us to, especially with this doc, doctrine of election. And I find great comfort in that because He is God. He is far beyond us. Our job isn't to conform God and His ways to our ways of thinking. That's not our job. Our job is to humble ourselves to His, even when we don't understand them. So what about this question? Why does He still find fault? And you might be thinking that's a pretty good question. It sounds like a pretty good question. But the problem is that Paul, based on the response that he gives to this question, doesn't think it's a very good question. And if Paul, who God wrote this passage through, doesn't think it's a good question, then that reveals to us that God doesn't think this is a very good question either. This question actually offends God. Look at verse 19 again, and then we'll look at how he answers it. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verses 20 and 21 provide the answer. But who are you, O man to answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? Notice the answer here that he gives isn't really an answer to the question. It's it's more an answer to the questioner. He's, he's He's... putting the questioner back in his place. He's knocking him down a few pegs with this answer. It's like God saying to him, you, a man, question my wisdom. You, a man, question my justice. You question my perfect ways. Who do you think you are? Who are you, a man, to suggest that I, God, have to give an account to you for my actions? Rightly read and understood in the context, that's what the answer to this question is saying. 
So this question-answer combo in these, these verses sets up, I think, the first important principle for us. When we just can't wrap our heads around something that God is doing, when we can't wrap our heads around God's ways, when we can't understand or make sense of this doctrine of election, this passage is intended to be a warning to us. Before we object too fast, we need to understand, and this would be the first the first guideline for us, the first principle, the wrong way to question God's election. That's what Paul wants to show us here. The wrong way to question God's election. And we need to ask ourselves, why did Paul respond with such a sharp and powerful rebuke to put this questioner back in his place? And basically the answer is because behind this question, there's a charge against God. The questioner, we understand this based on the answer, the questioner is basically saying to God, God, why would you judge them? It's your fault if they don't believe. It's not their fault. Based on everything that you've said before, why would you judge them? You have no right, God, to hold them accountable. That's what this question is really saying. That's why the response is so strong. Now, I know that when, when we ask this kind of question, when we think about this kind of question, that, that a lot of times we're, most people, I think, are sincerely seeking knowledge. We, we really want to know. But the first principle that God's Word gives us when we're seeking knowledge about God's ways or about anything comes in Proverbs 1.7. If we're going to seek knowledge, we've got to do it the right way. And Proverbs 1.7 tells us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So we've got to have this this mindset, this attitude, this perspective before we go and just quickly, hastily ask God a question and maybe object to His ways. We've got to have the fear of the Lord. And if we lose that, then we very well may offend God with our questions. Basically, we need to think before we ask. We need to be slow to speak. We need to have a reverential fear of God. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, well, the perfect example of somebody who learned this was Job. Job was a man who learned the fear of the Lord, but he learned it by speaking too quickly, without thinking. And if you read, we're not going to read it all, but in Job chapter, chapters 38 through 40, we get a really clear picture of this. Job understood, based on this interaction between him and God, that, that God, the Creator, wasn't very fond of having His creatures question His ways. And we, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God could respond to us the way he responded to Job. It says in Job chapter 38 that he responded to him out of a whirlwind and basically he just put Job in his place quickly. I'll just read you a couple excerpts from those chapters. God said to Job, Who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Tell me, Job, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood may cover the earth? Can you send the lightning? 
Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like His? Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And he ended by saying, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? That's powerful. When we have questions in our minds, and we will have questions about the way God chooses to run the world, the way God chooses to do things, we have to be very careful. And we have to remember who God is. That's what God was reminding Job of when he was too quickly to object or ask questions. We have to remember who God is. And likewise, we have to remember who we are. We are not God. He is God. And remembering that, who God is, knowing that God is always loving, knowing that God is always just, knowing that God is always right, will help us to think through things that we don't understand more clearly before we overreact. So we must never accuse, incriminate, or implicate God, even unintentionally, by the way we ask questions. I think this is just telling us we need to really think and we need to remember the fear of the Lord, that His name is to be hallowed, that He is to be revered and feared before we ask questions hastily. Job learned this. Look at his response. Uh, Job chapter 40, we'll have it projected up here, verses 3 through 5. This is the way that Job responded after God blasted him out of the whirlwind. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. We have to have that attitude at times whenever we don't understand God's ways. He's God. We have to let God be God. Something that might help is just to imagine that Jesus is in the room with you when you maybe are going to ask a question about something that God's doing or about the doctrine of election specifically. And I'm not talking about like frail, delicate little picture Bible Jesus that you see in the paintings. I'm talking about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords with fire in his eyes. That Jesus. Imagine that that Jesus, that's who answered Job, is in the room with you when you're tempted to question God's ways. Ask yourself, would he be offended if I asked the question in this way? Paul answered, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? God is God, and we are not. And we have to remember that when we don't understand his ways. The second principle that we're given in this passage comes from the truths in verses 20 and 21. And that is why we must accept God's election even if we don't understand it. This comes in an illustration that just clarifies this and brings this all together. Romans 9, 20 through 21. God's Word says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay 
to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. So the analogy here likens God to a potter. And he's got this, beside him in this, this bowl, a single lump of clay. So picture God bent over his, picture this potter bent over this potter's wheel, bowl here with a single lump of clay beside it. And the potter reaches down into this lump of clay and takes out a handful and throws it onto the potter's wheel. And as the wheel's spinning, he's molding, he's creating something out of it. And he creates maybe out of this first lump uh, a series of, of beautiful, delicate, ornamental dishes that he's going to sit up, set upon his mantle and put something very valuable to him in it to display. So he makes out of that same lump, it says in our passage, Vessels for dishonorable use. So the potter reaches in that same lump, he takes out another handful, throws it on his wheel, and he's molding, and he's creating, and he creates something dishonorable with this lump of clay. Maybe he makes a slop basin for his hog pen. Or maybe he makes a a spit tune to sit on the floor at the end of the local bar. Something dishonorable. It's not going to hold something that, that, that is to have glory Maybe he makes bedpans for the local hospital. That's the point here. God can create honorable, dishonorable. This potter creates honorable, dishonorable vessels out of the same lump. And nobody questions the potter because he has the right to do with his clay what he wants to do. And that's the point here. In the same way, God is absolutely free and sovereign as God if we rightly understand the concept of God, who He is, He's absolutely free to reach down into that lump of clay and make out of it whatever He chooses. If He desires, He can reach down and He can mold a Moses to magnify His mercy by leading Israel out of captivity. At the same time, if He desires to reach down into that clay, throw it on and mold a Pharaoh who's going to reject Him and refuse Him. He can do that to magnify His great power and His wrath. God can do whatever He wants with His clay. He's absolutely free to do whatever He wills. God has free will. That's the point of this illustration. And this isn't just here. This is all through the Scriptures. Proverbs 16.14 tells us, The Lord has made everything for its purpose even the wicked, for the day of trouble. Isaiah 45.9 says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? It's like God said to Job, How can you, a fault finder, contend with the Almighty? What this really comes down to is just letting God be God. He is God, and He molds each piece as He chooses. And nobody can tell Him otherwise. And that alone, rightly understood, is reason enough that we must accept this doctrine, even if we don't understand it. I saw on the news recently, you probably have seen this, that 
this was a couple days old. I don't know where it's at now, but there was this great big blob of lava moving down toward a town in Hawaii. Have you seen that? I don't know where it's at now, but as I watched the interviews um, of the townspeople there in Hawaii, it, was, it reminded me of, of what we're talking about here. People were saying the lava will do whatever it wants. It's not taking requests. One person said she's not concerned with public opinion. People seem to understand that about this lava because it's bigger than them. It's more powerful than them. They can't do anything about it. It's beyond their control. And as Christians, we need to understand this about God. It's really not about you and I and our opinions. It's much bigger than that. It's about God, God, who He is, and what He decides to do. And we've got to be okay with that. But unlike this big giant blob of lava that's moving toward this town, God has a purpose in everything He does. He does everything for a reason. And He has a purpose in this doctrine of election that's so difficult to accept and understand. And that's what we're going to see in the last section of this passage. God's purpose in election. Romans 9, 22 and 23. It says, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand, for glory. So the question here isn't whether this divine potter has the right to do with whatever he wants out of his clay. It's, it's, that's already been settled. The point here is to show us why he does it. Or at least to give us a little bit of insight as to why he does it. Look again, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show, to show his wrath, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known His power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known, that's key, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. So it's very evident here that God has a purpose and He wants us to see something about Himself. He wants to show us something. He wants to make something known here. Think back to, like, if you grew up in Sunday school or hearing Bible stories, um, just think back to the stories that we've been talking about, like Moses and Pharaoh. God, through Pharaoh, remember when the ten plagues came and Pharaoh just kept changing his mind. He would say, okay, God, I'll let, I'll let your people go, because God was showing his power through these plagues. And then he would change his mind. I'm not letting them go. So another plague came. And then another. And I kept thinking as a kid, as I heard this story, God is being really patient. Why doesn't he just kill this guy and let, let the people go? But that's the point here. God was enduring with much patience this vessel of wrath prepared for destruction so that his power and wrath could be seen. If we didn't have any of these evil kings and stories in the Old Testament we would not get the full picture of God's glory. We wouldn't see His power and wrath. That's how He reveals it to His people. 
And then verse 22, what if God desiring, or 23, I'm sorry, he says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. See, that's why he left, or that's why he created these vessels of wrath and then left them there and endured with patience. It's in order that his mercy could be shown. So we see here God wants to show us his wrath, his power, and his mercy. If everyone, if everyone that he created were just a vessel of mercy, we wouldn't see the fullness of who God is. And we wouldn't fully appreciate, we who are vessels of mercy, wouldn't really be able to appreciate it either, would we? We've got to have that black backdrop to kind of appreciate the gift. And what this reminds me of as I was reading this, it reminds me of a couple things. Um, you know, when I was in school, when I was a kid, I played sports. And back then, I think it's a little different than it is now in some cases, like Back then, if you won a tournament or a contest or um, a game, you, you got a medal or a trophy. But I'm realizing that's not so much the same now. Now, like, everybody it has to be like, completely fair. So everybody has to get a trophy or a medal. And I've, I've seen some sports where not just the winners, but the losers too. They, everybody gets the trophy, so it's fair. And, and you know, I was thinking that... that I mean, if I, was, if I were a winner now, it kind of like diminishes the glory of the trophy or the medal, right? In the same way, if, if everybody receives mercy, well, you don't see the glory of it. That's his point here. He wants to show his glory of mercy to those vessels who receive mercy. I see a lot of younger people, so I'll use this thought too, that I was, this illustration I was thinking. Uh, a lot of you probably have seen the movie The Incredibles. If, if you haven't, I see a lot of heads shaking, so this might work. If you haven't seen that, it's a movie about these superheroes that they're, they're just gifted that way. They're born that way. Not everybody's a superhero, but this family, Mr. Incredible and his family, are superheroes. And um, in that movie, there's this bad guy named Syndrome. And he, he, he's not a superhero, but he, he kind of made himself this special suit where he could do superpowers and he really was offended by Mr. Incredible and the other superheroes early in the movie. And um, so he became evil. And with his special suit, he was able to take Mr. Incredible captive and imprison him. And he was, what he wanted to do was he wanted to take the glory, just the, the, the awesomeness, the respect that everyone had for Mr. Incredible and the other superheroes away from them. So as Mr. Incredible is imprisoned here, then uh, Syndrome says to him, he says, I'm going to create my super suits and give them to everyone in the world. Then everybody can be super. And if everybody's super, then nobody's super. And his point was, you're not going to be so special now, Mr. Incredible, because I'm going to make everybody super. And that really is what God is saying here in this passage. That's what God is saying in verses 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction 
in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Like it or not, God in His divine wisdom has decided to create a world in which He reveals both His wrath and His mercy. And the fact that everybody doesn't receive mercy makes that mercy weightier, more glorious for those who do. Now, have you ever considered, if you're a vessel of mercy, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're saved, have you ever considered that you could have been a vessel of wrath? I mean, just think about that. I remember the first time that hit me. Uh, It wasn't very long ago. I've understood this doctrine of election, or at least understood what the Bible teaches about it, for many years. And I've accepted it for many years, but I remember this one evening, night I was walking from my garage to my house, and it was clear, and I was looking at the stars, and I was just thinking about how big and awesome God is, and it just hit me. It sunk in. Why am I? Why me? Why did you save me? I I could have not been saved. And it has nothing to do with me. I mean, yes, in an earthly sense, I believed in Jesus. But his point here in this chapter is that it is not by the will of man, nor by exertion. It's by God. He ultimately chose me. Jesus said, you did not choose me. I chose you. Yes, we did choose Jesus, but he chose us first. And that's his point here. I could have... Why did He do that? Why did He work in my life so as to orchestrate the events of my circumstances that I would hear the Gospel, believe it, and and be saved? Why? It's amazing. It's glorious. And that's His point. That's His point here. So, there are a lot of wrong presumptions about election. And some some say that evangelism sharing the gospel with everyone is inconsistent with this doctrine of election. And that is wrong. That's just mere human reasoning. Oh yeah, logically that might seem inconsistent if you really understand election, but our job is to accept what God says. And He says, He says in Acts 17.31, God commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. He also says, whosoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power for salvation for everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Jesus will save you. If you don't believe in Jesus, this might seem inconsistent with what we've been hearing in the last few weeks, but it's not. In God's ways, I'm here to tell you, if you don't believe in Jesus, that God commands you to believe in Jesus Christ today. God commands you to do that. That Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords who became a man, died for our sins, and rose from the dead. We believe in election. We also believe in evangelism. We also believe in praying for our lost loved ones. You might say, well, if God has it all figured out, why would we do that? But here's the thing to remember, guys. God, in His infinite wisdom, somehow allows us, human beings, to cooperate with Him, sovereign God, 
in the execution of his sovereign will on earth. That's the dilemma. That's what we can't figure out. But that's in God's hands. That's not ours to figure out. We're to do what God says. We're to cooperate with Him in the execution of His will by praying for our lost loved ones, by sharing the gospel with everyone we know, and ultimately remembering it's all up to God. That takes the pressure off, doesn't it? So we might not make sense of it, but that's not what we're called to. We're called to trust God. And just like at the beginning, Mrs. Einstein, just like she felt about her husband, When it comes to Jesus Christ, our glorious, sovereign, all-powerful King, and His wonderful, mysterious ways, we may not understand them, but we know Jesus. He is good, He is right, He is just, and we can trust Him. And that's what it comes down to. We've got to let Him be God, because He can be trusted. Let's pray, and we'll have the band come up to close the message. Father, we... Uh, we, we don't understand You because You're beyond us. And we surrender, Lord, to Your ways. You are God. You are always good. You are always loving. You are always right in all that You do, Lord. We trust You. We are undeserving of Your mercy. Help us, Lord, impress on us the weight of this glorious, unimaginable, eternal gift of mercy that You've given to us who believe in You as we sing this last song. And we pray, Lord, for our unsaved loved ones and for any here who might be unsaved, that You would save them today. We thank You, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.